I want to read to you two different passages from the New Testament. One of them will be John chapter 19. It will be verses 16 through 27. The other passage will be from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. So I'm telling you that now. Uh, Also, I'm going to tell you this. The sermon today is going to be a little bit different from what we usually have. It's not what you would call, what some people call an expository sermon. It's really two stories. That's what I'm going to tell you about. And uh, one story is more of a secular story, but it's about one of my very, very favorite athletes of all times. And uh, the other one is going to be, of course, about Jesus. But we're also going to be talking about two very important people in their lives. I'm going to read this to you now. starting with John 19, uh, verses 16 through 27. So he, that is Pilate, delivered him over to, to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So... The soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now, I'm telling you something, back in that day and age and in that particular culture, for a son or any child to refer to his mother as woman was not rude at all. Uh, You might want to say almost, you could translate it, my dear, if you wanted to put it that way, but Jesus was not being rude to Mary. Now, let's go on, (coughs) pardon me, (coughs) to Acts chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 4. And while staying with them, that is, Jesus staying with his disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power after the, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, 
He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Well, it was the evening of April the 8th, 1974, and it was a, a day in which baseball history was rewritten. 553,775 fans had crowded into the old Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia, the home of the Atlanta Braves. And the people were there uh, to watch the Braves play the L.A. Dodgers. But <clears throat> they were not necessarily there to watch the hapless Braves play, nor were they there to root for the Dodgers. Oh, who would want to do that? But they came primarily to see one man, the man whom his t who was called by his teammates Soup for Superman or the Hammer. He was the man that opposing pitchers called Bad Henry. He was the Braves 40-year-old left fielder, Henry Aaron, and people came to see Henry swing the bat and he knew how to do it. Back when Henry Aaron was only 15 months old, Babe Ruth was playing for the Boston Braves and he hit three home runs in one game between the Braves and the Pittsburgh Pilots. The last of those three home runs went over the third tier of outfield seats and landed in a construction site across the street. It was Babe Ruth's 714th home run it was also the last one that he ever did hit. And for years, the experts and the fans in baseball, they claimed that Ruth's record would never be broken. But when the baseball season ended in 1973, Hank Aaron had put 713 balls over the fence. So when the Braves season opened in 1974, well, they played Cincinnati, and they played there in Cincinnati. Aaron's first swing of the bat produced home run 714 for him. And everyone knew that in 1974, Babe Ruth's record that had stood for 39 years was going to fall, if, that is, Henry Aaron lived long enough to do it. And that if seemed to be a mighty big if. Because for about a year, Henry Aaron had been receiving hate mail because he was closing in on the record of a white man. And some of the letters contained threats warning Henry Aaron not to break the record or else he would never live long enough to circle the bases. For the people in Atlanta, well, they took those threats seriously. So on the night of April the 8th, 1974, there in the Fulton County Stadium, the police and armed security guards were, were scattered throughout the stadium just in case Henry Aaron hit number 715 and just in case someone tried to put a bullet in him. 
And when Aaron came to the plate in the first inning, he faced the Dodger Southpaw. His name was Al Downing. He was a pitcher that was noted for his control and his accuracy, not so much the speed of his fastball. And he walked Henry Aaron on four straight pitches. And the fans booed him unmercifully. And whenever the fourth inning came around, again, Henry stepped to, to bat, and Downing's first pitch was a changeup that knocked up dirt in front of home plate. Aaron still hadn't swung his bat in the game. He was looking for a fastball. And the umpire, Dave Davidson, tossed out a new ball to Al Downing. The catcher set up for a fastball. And with the scoreboard clock reading 9.07 p.m., Downing sends the pitch hurtling toward the catcher, but this time something's different. The, the pitch is coming in too high. It's going to be in the middle of the strike zone. And when it did, Aaron's body began to uncoil. And those thick, powerful wrists of his became a dark blur as the bat, bat made contact with the ball. And the ball met the sweet spot on the bat, and a solid crack was heard, a sound that makes pitch, pitchers sick because they know that they just served up a souvenir into the outfield seats. Al Downing turned and he watched the ball go over the fence and then he walked away and sat down in the Dodgers dugout until the crowd and the cheering subsided. But Henry Aaron, being the class act that he was, he took off running as soon as he hit the ball. He never stood at home plate and watched the ball go over the fence. He wasn't a hot dog. And so he never saw this one go over the fence. But as he was running the first base, the first base coach told him that the race was over. Henry Aaron rounded first, and he knew that the chase was over. But for security personnel that night, the game was afoot. The stadium had turned into an arena of madness. People were going nuts. The crowd began roaring nonstop. Guards and police officers scanned and scrutinized the stand, straining to see maybe the outline of a gun barrel or some threatening advance. And so intent was their gaze that they failed to notice that two young men hopped over onto the field and started running alongside Henry Aaron between second and third and patting him on the behind as a way to say congratulations, Hank. And as Henry Aaron, uh, as Henry Aaron rounded third base, then the Braves dugout emptied out. And all the players came and they gathered around home plate waiting for him to get there. And they were doing it not just to congratulate him, but they were wanting to protect him. And then out on the field, someone showed up running out from behind the left field fence and he had something in his hand, but it was just the relief pitchers for the Brave. He was bringing in the home run ball. But just as Aaron stepped on the plate, another face appeared in that crowd that was gathered around on the field. And, and this, this face was a different one. This person was not in uniform. This person was obviously not a security guard or a police officer or a player. But this, player, this person forced a path through the protective barricade of players and lunged at Henry Aaron. And that person was someone who had known Henry Aaron all his life. It was his mother, Mrs. Herbert Aaron. And later on in an interview, she made this comment. She, she said that she did not rush out onto the field to congratulate her son. She said, I just came to be with him. 
She said, I had heard that people had threatened to shoot him. And she said, I decided that if someone was going to shoot my son, they're going to have to shoot me first. <laughs> you know, in that particular day, players and coaches had their own perspective on the game. Two of the great television announcers were Milo Hamilton and Vin Scully. They looked at that from another perspective, but only Mrs. Herbert Aaron of Mobile, Alabama, saw it all through a mother's eyes. Now let's go back in time a little bit farther. Just outside Jerusalem, there's a hill where criminals were formerly executed by the authority of the Roman government. And on one particular day in about 30 AD, just before the Passover, three men were crucified publicly, of course. That was the way it was done. Two of these men were just nondescript criminals. But it was the man in the middle that was crucified, the one that was known as Jesus or Yeshua. He was the one that people came to see that day. Well, the Roman soldiers were there because that was just part of their job and they were doing it. But there were really religious leaders and dignitaries there among the spectators, and they wouldn't have missed this occasion for the world. They wanted to be there so that they could gloat in their moment of triumph. Some followers of this man in the middle were there just watching helplessly and hopelessly. Most of the onlookers were the crowd's nameless faces, though, the supple spine and sometimes silent majority who had cheered Jesus one day and then jeered him the next day. They were there out of curiosity. However, there was one face in that crowd that was not nameless, one person who would have gladly traded places with Jesus or shared his agony, one of the few people who had never been known to turn away from him the man in the middle was someone that was very special to her. He was her son. And he was not the only child she had born, but he was her first. And she saw him as no one else did, nor anyone could at that time. And now she saw him as she had never seen him before. He was dying the most ignominious of deaths. He was held slightly aloft on a wooden cross to which he had been fastened with spikes. He had been beaten twice that day and flogged at least once. His breath came out with difficulty. Most victims of crucifixion died from exposure and exhaustion, but it took some men two or three days to finally die. This woman knew that if God was merciful to her son, he would let him die in just a few hours. His mother should have seen this coming, and maybe she did. You know, the last 34 years of her life, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. The last 34 years of her life had been unusual to say the least, and it was all thanks to this son. Because even before she was married to her fiance, she was informed by an angel that she would miraculously have a child, a son, really, and she would do so even without having a relationship with any man. This son that she was going to have the angel told her, was going to be the son of the Most High God. As a matter of fact, he would assume the vacant throne of King David. He was the one that the Jewish people had been looking for for centuries. And when this son was born, she and her fiancé Joseph were in Bethlehem on a crowded evening, and it was there that this son of hers came into the world. 
but he didn't come with royal fashion. His first baby crib was a feed trough. And however, later on that evening, there were some scruffy shepherds that showed up there at the stalls, and, and, and they came to see this baby that was just born, and they told Mary that they had just been informed about this birth by some angels, and some of them were singing, and they told us to come here and see him. Then when Jesus was about six weeks old, she and Joseph, Mary and Joseph took him to Jerusalem. They went to present the customary sacrifices that you would give for a firstborn son. And there at the temple, they happened to meet a man named Simeon. No doubt it amazed them when Simeon walked up to them and took the baby out of Mary's arms and began praying right in front of them. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, just as you said, for my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for the nations and the glory of your people Israel. And then Simeon turned to Mary and Joseph and he blessed them. And then he said to Mary, this child is destined to bring about the rise and fall of many in Israel. He will be a sign spoken against and a revealer of people's thoughts. And a sword will pierce your own soul, Mary. A few months later, some stargazers from the east arrived in Bethlehem. They had followed a star and they came to pay homage to Mary's son. Yes, to this baby that was born into the home of a rather obscure and a not-so-well-to-do couple, they gave him gifts that were fit only for a king. Several years later, when Jesus was 12 years old, he and Mary and Joseph and the family, as a matter of fact, several families and friends and theirs, they all went down to Jerusalem for a religious feast. But whenever it came time to go, they realized the next day that Jesus wasn't with them. They just assumed that he had been with some other families, you know, like Uncle Nabob and whoever. And they just didn't worry about it. But then they began searching for him and they couldn't find him. So they turn around and they go back to Jerusalem to hunt him down. And when they do find him, where is he? He is in the temple talking to scholars and religious experts who were shocked and amazed at the questions that he asked and the answers that he gave them. As a matter of fact, whenever Mary and Joseph found him, they were shocked. And Mary told her son Jesus, she said, you've had me and your daddy worried sick. And Jesus, kind of like a typical innocent 12-year-old boy, said, but you know I have to be about my father's business. And they went on. But you know something? Despite some of the strange and puzzling things about Mary's son, he really was a good kid. He was a real good boy. As a matter of fact, you could truly say of him, he was the perfect child. And he grew up to be a great and respectable young man. Mary was proud of him. And it showed. She really was. One time, they were at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Mary was there. Jesus was there. Some of his disciples were there. And at the feast, they ran out of wine, which was a serious faux pas back then. And Mary, when she found out about it, for whatever reason, she goes up to Jesus, her son, and said, they've run out of wine. 
Now, I don't know what she expected him to do, but she expected him to do something. And she goes over to the servants and get this. She said, now, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. She was proud of him. She truly was. Life wasn't always easy for Mary. And somewhere along the way, she lost her husband. We never read another line about Joseph after Jesus was 12 years old. Mary also had to deal with such problems as sibling rivalry among her other children. And it is certain that she couldn't turn a deaf ear to all the talk about Jesus. Indeed, there were some people that adored him and believed in him. They believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah. But there were other people that hated the very ground that he walked upon, and they wanted him dead. Yes, Simeon had warned her about a sword that was going to pierce her heart. Well, it was piercing it right now as she gazed upon her son as he was dying in this inhumane manner. You know, voices at that time had long called out for an end to crucifixion because they considered it just so brutal. And the Roman government had finally made some concessions. They banned crucifixion for those who were Roman citizens, but the rest of them, could, they could kill that way. And folks, it was not just the horror of his physical sufferings that was so painful to Mary. This was her son. This was her firstborn son. And he was the one who had no equal when it came to teaching and healing people. And here he was, helplessly enduring all the taunts of those who envied and hated him. And it was more than sad. It was absolutely sickening to see her son's life end this way. And then finally, mercifully, he breathed his last that afternoon at about 3 o'clock. And just as his birth and his life were so amazing, so was his death. Three hours before he died, there was this unexplainable thick darkness that clothed that whole area. And it stayed there for three long hours. And then an earthquake rattled the countryside. You know, it just seemed that Jesus never seemed to fail to put people in awe. But what happened with him three days after that was something that no one could believe at first. He was found outside the tomb, and he was alive and quite well. For several weeks after that, he appeared with various people. Even he appeared to his brothers who at one time had ridiculed him. And then once again, Jesus did the spectacular. He gathered together his followers on the Mount of Olives. He gave them some instructions of what they needed to be doing in the future. He gave them some encouragement. And then, before their very eyes, he ascended up into heaven and disappeared from sight. Well, these followers, there's about 120 of them or so, these followers began meeting together in Jerusalem. And among them was the only one who had ever been able to look at Jesus through a mother's eyes. But now she looked at him in a different way. You see, he was now more than just her firstborn son. He was her Lord. He was her master. He was her savior. I want to ask you, how do you look at Jesus? I mean, what does he mean to you? I mean, is he the 
the great teacher and miracle worker? Or is he really the son of God? Is he someone who died on a cross for sins over 2,000 years ago and then was raised from the dead? Or is he all of these things to you and even more? Is he your savior and your Lord and your teacher and your master? If he is, you're going to follow him and you're going to do just as he said when Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. My friends, I can tell you from my own experience that if you will trust Jesus with your fears, with your sins, with your life, and with your future, you will never look at Jesus in the same way again. Your life will be forever changed. Now we're going to close this service with prayer. But after we do that, I will do as I've tried to do now for several weeks. I'm going to be right up here. And if you have not committed your life to following Jesus and taking up your cross every day and going after him, if you've not trusted him enough to entrust him with your sins and your guilt and your worries and your fears, I'd love to talk to you and tell you how to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Let's pray together. Our Lord now, we thank you for sending your son into this sin-sick world. And Lord, we thank you for heroes of the faith like Mary. But we just thank you so much for the son that she bore. Lord, we thank you for the fact that through him we have forgiveness of sin. We have a hope that is a hope that's not like the world gives, and we know a love that is not the kind of love that we can find just in this world. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would impress this upon our hearts. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, open their hearts and their minds today to him. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.